church. Great to see you. My name is Greg Paris. So glad you're here. If you've joined us online, welcome to you. Thanks for getting up and tuning in. Congratulations on figuring it out, how to get online and watch us. Good, good job. I downloaded a boarding pass recently on my phone. That was pretty impressive. Technology. Yeah. So if you need any advice, just let me know. I can coach you right up. Hey, we've had some great events here in the life of the church recently. I just wanted to say thanks to everyone who, who made the medical conference so meaningful last uh, weekend, uh, very meaningful. I, I assume someone talked about that maybe last Sunday, so appreciate everyone who participated, all the medical personnel who were involved. Uh, really appreciate it, really meaningful event. Also, I uh, wanted to mention that... Uh, our Connections Pastor, Jeff Hughes, who's here in the service this, this hour, just uh, received his Master of Divinity degree yesterday at Indiana Wesleyan University. <laughs> Kudos to Jeff. I have an MDiv myself, and I know they don't give you those things. You've got to earn them. And so congratulations. Well done. Proud of you. Uh, last weekend, of course, we were hosting a church planting conference in Phoenix, Arizona, and we had uh, just about all of our church planters from around the country and various parts of the world. It was amazing. It was powerful. And so we were so thrilled about what God's doing through all of those initiatives. One of our good friends uh, from another part of the world, Central Asia, is here. Yasin Itashev is here. Yasin, stand up and wave at everybody. This is what a, a guy from Central Asia looks like. We, we uh, uprooted, about 28 years ago, uprooted members of our congregation here in Muncie and planted them in Central Asia. They, they lived there full time. And within two years, we had, we had made friends and, and won a young family, traditionally Muslim, won a young family to Christ, a husband and wife and their two small sons. Yasin, now fast forward 28 years, he's the oldest of those two sons and now he leads teams planting churches for us in Central Asia. Now, if I was preaching a sermon today on dreaming big dreams and having vision for the future, setting goals, that would be a good illustration, wouldn't it? Because you can't have a story like that if you don't dream big dreams. So don't give up on your dreams. God is in the dream-fulfilling business. So you be encouraged. Hang on to that. If God's calling you to something big, something great, hang on to it. Don't give up on your dream. Amen? Okay. Well, I'm not sure. I maybe need to double back on that sometime. <laughs> if you have a Bible, I want to reference today 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the church at Corinth. This is the first century, of course, and it's challenging to be a Christian in the first century. Lots of resistance, opposition, worldviews are very strikingly different. Not dissimilar to the world in which we're living right now. It's not easy to be a Christian in today's world. Uh, there's a lot of headwind. And so today I want to talk about, the, the, the name of my message is The Thrill of Orthodoxy. You have to stay with me. You have to stay with me. You have, if, you have to think, work with me today, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is the Apostle Paul now, and he's talking about the difficulties of living the Christian life in that particular culture and and it just can encourage us perhaps in our own culture today. Our custom is to stand, to recognize the loving authority of God's word. Thank you for doing that as you're able. 
2 Corinthians 4, this is verse 8. Paul said, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Well, wow, that's, that's a strong thing. So that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. May God honor the reading of his word today. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Let me try to define orthodoxy because we're thrilled about it, according to the title. And are you ready? Are you going to work with me? Now think. Here we go. Orthodox faith is the faith that originated from the first apostles of the first century. Orthodoxy is a word that uh, theologians came up with many centuries ago, and we've been using it ever since, and we all understand its basic meaning. Uh, Ortho, of orthodoxy, ortho just means straight. You go to the orthodontist to get your teeth straight. You go to the orthopedist to get your bones straight. So it means straight, straight truth in this case, trustworthy truth, the things we believe that are fundamental and foundational to our faith. A more conventional definition is the traditional doctrines, generally traditionally accepted, established and approved, reflected by the earliest followers of Jesus as contained in the New Testament and also in the historic creeds. There were some really smart boys and girls that got together many centuries ago. Uh, Those people who lived close to the actual time when Jesus was on the earth, and they said, "Let's, let's establish some points of doctrine that will be the foundation stones of the Christian faith. And so they initiated historic creeds. The two that are universally recognized in the world are the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. So we have the creeds, and we also have ecumenical councils. This is when all the smarty pants got together uh, early in the Christian faith and established these foundational points of doctrine now described as the apostolic faith as it relates to the apostles, the original apostles, the faith once delivered to the saints. This is another phrase that you will hear as it's defining orthodoxy. And so you should know that I am an orthodox Christian. I believe the faith once delivered to the saints. I believe the faith established by the apostles, the people who knew Jesus, saw him with with, with their eyes. And, and, And so I'm an orthodox Christian. And I think it's thrilling. Not only do I believe it to be true, I think it's very exciting. I think it's very adventuresome. I think it's very challenging. I I am thrilled by orthodoxy. Let me put a couple of statements on the screen because we don't live any longer in a a Christian culture. It's a post-Christian culture. And someone like me needs to say these things just to remind us where we stand. Here's the first statement I want to make. It's about orthodoxy. I believe that standing for orthodoxy is exciting, it's faithful, it's courageous, it's also challenging, it's very hard, especially in the face of today's culture, and it's right, it's true. And so here I stand. Now, if you contrast that, here's another statement I want to make today, and this is going to be challenging to some folks, and and I want you to just... if you hear me, hear me as a person who cares and loves for you. I'm not, I'm not angry with anybody. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, against anybody. I'm not, I don't have anyone in mind. I didn't write this sermon thinking about you or your family or members of your family or your close friends. None of that. 
this is a this is a general position that I'm describing, and it will land on you where it lands. But hear me in love, because I because I care about these things. I think standing for changing, shifting, progressive culture, and the word progressive, of course, is now in our vernacular. It's the nomenclature that we use to we used to call liberal. Uh, and now it's an ideology in our world that has all kinds of implications to it. You define progressive. I might define it slightly differently, but we all understand generally what I'm talking about. A progressive mindset, an ideology now that's being promoted politically and socially and even and culturally and theologically in our world. I think, again, personal opinion, standing for changing, shifting progressive culture or church is boring. It's easy, it's compromising, it's lazy, and it's ultimately bankrupt. That's, that's, just, that's my attitude toward it. Now, let me get back to the point I want to make today about the thrill of orthodoxy. I'm convinced more than ever before that one of the church's primary missions in this postmodern age is to ensure that the orthodox faith once handed down to the apostles, is still intact as my generation passes it on to the next generation. It's very important, central to our mission. Not only do we keep the faith as followers of Jesus throughout our lifetimes, but we want to pass on the faith. We've received it, handed down to us, the Christian faith now for for 2,000 years, and it's incumbent upon us to be determined to pass it on. We're running our leg of the race, and when I pass the baton to the next generation, I want to make sure that I am, be, I am found faithful. Yeah, you hear me? So making new followers of Jesus is, is always the primary mission of the church, and then to make sure that they're well-discipled and also spiritually formed. And I just want to submit to you that that is thrilling to me. That's exciting to me, to help people know Jesus and to grow in their relationship with Jesus and then find a level of maturity and passion so that you share the hope of Jesus with others to influence the world around you. That is exciting to me. That is thrilling to me. That's like a worthwhile life. That's a meaningful purpose. And and so I get excited about that. Now flip it over again, and let me just contrast it with what I would describe for me personally as the boredom of progressive thinking. I find progressive theology, and this is kind of my bailiwick, this is where I live, I find it really boring. The very foundation on which it rests means that doctrine, theology, the issues of orthodoxy, which I've described, must change with whatever the issue of the day is. As the ever-shortening news cycle combined with the ever-changing whims of Pop culture moved to a new topic. Progressive theology must move with it. How boring. How easy is that? The problem with this progressive mindset, in my opinion, is that it puts the world in the driver's seat and stuffs orthodoxy, the foundations of our faith, in the trunk, you know? So, you know, the world goes this way, you steer that way, and, the, and now this is of interest to us, so we steer over that way. And this whole idea of believing in Jesus and what he said and what he taught becomes passe, becomes optional. 
becomes individualistic. My truth, your truth, my opinion, your opinion, everybody opinions are like a nose, everyone has one. And so you have this, you have this shifting sand upon which we try to stand theologically, and the sand keeps shifting. It's hard to know where to stand. I don't, I don't find it interesting at all. I find it boring, tedious. If the, if the pop culture would, could be considered uh, metaphorically like a river that's flowing, you know, this is, the, this is the flow of the river right now, this is what's trendy, this is what's popular, and everybody's getting in the river. Let me just remind you, when you get in the, the river of popular opinion, it doesn't take any effort at all. You don't have to paddle, you don't have to stroke, you don't have to swim, you have to make any effort. You just sit in your little raft and float. Come on in. Everybody's getting in the water. We're having a great time. You see beach balls flying from raft to raft and going down the river. Come on. Come on, Greg. Get in. Don't don't you know 72% of American culture now, and this is true, 72% think that same-sex marriage is okay. Come on in. Now, listen, I'm not against anybody uh, and any of their lifestyle practices. I'm not against people with same-sex marriage. You ju- you're judgmental. You're just another one of those Christians. You think everybody who's you know, in some kind of homosexual relationship is going to hell. I don't think that. I don't think people in a same-sex re- sexual relationship are going to hell any more than people who in heterosexual sexual relationships are going to heaven. It's goofy. That's not the standard. Let me just remind you, there's, there's nobody going to heaven except sinners. I've said this many times. The first thing, I know this is going to happen to me. The first step I make into the eternal kingdom someday, I know what I'm going th- to think. I'm going to say, what is a person like me doing in a place like this? Because I know what I'm like. I'm a mess. You've also heard me a thousand times say that I'm going to be surprised in heaven to see people there I didn't expect to see there and to miss people I did expect to see. So who goes to heaven, who doesn't? That's not your job or mine. It's not on my job description. I'm not the judge of anybody. I'm not against anyone. I'm for, I'm for God's glorious design and intent for us. And I have convictions about that. And you can find those convictions in the context of orthodoxy. And that's where I stand. I respect your opinion. I ask for yours. So there are these voices, though, in today's culture, especially in the theological world, the church world, that say, if you don't change your position on same-sex marriage, uh, your church is going to die. If you don't get in the river and go with the flow, it's not going to end well for you. I had one friend look at me very sincerely. He's a progressive-minded Christian leader, and he said, he said, listen, 50 years from now, people are going to feel the same way about same-sex marriage as they do a divorce, which, of course, has become very common and passe in our world. People get divorced now, and no one even thinks a second thought. And I, I just want to pause and just say, you know, that's not good. That's not good. What folks in the river don't realize, if they would just take a glance at history, 
what they don't realize is that just around the next bend in the river, there's a big waterfall and people are going over. It's not going to end well. One day, culture decides we should be concerned with the woke sexual revolution. And please don't trifle with me about using the word woke. Apparently, this triggers people. But we all understand the definition of woke in the current vernacular. So stop. And so today, people are concerned with woke sexual revolution. And accordingly, our orthodox doctrine should bow to it. So you see the church, historic denomination, shifting. Because, because now we've got to accommodate new ideas about human sexuality. Tomorrow, the world decides we should be concerned with radical environmentalism. And should we con- be concerned about the, the planet? Yes, Christians should be the best caretakers of the planet. It's a beautiful place God has made for us. And so we should be at the forefront of ways to keep it clean. You know, clean up your mess. Take care of the place around you. It's what what you do. However, we are not people who worship the creation. Christian people are, are folks who worship the creator. There's a God above all of this. He's big and he's worthy of worship. The planet is just the place we live. We should take care of it. We should nurture it. We should tend it by all means. But let's not worship it. Let's not lose our minds over it. Let's not, let's not make, it, make of it an idol. The following day, pop culture gets bored one more time and moves yet to another topic. So once again, progressivism holds that our orthodox doctrine should bow to that topic, leaving the bride of Christ and the Lord in a secondary position or tertiary position. And so to summarize, when heresy comes into the church, and it comes from time to time, and even though it may be marketed as being diverse or expansive or inclusive, you know, these are, these are words that, that we tend to go, yeah, that's the way we should be. Anytime orthodoxy gets displaced by one of those notions, we, we, we must predict that it will always turn out to be smaller and narrower than the benefits and the substance of orthodoxy. It won't stand the test of time. So, for example, you cannot take something that is clearly on the biblical list of things to avoid, you know, sins, to overcome, you know, avoid these things. Don't do these things. And overcome them by God's grace and power in your life. And your life will be better if you don't indulge or engage in these kind of sinful, destructive behaviors. And so we we all understand the consequence of sin. Everyone in the room has a story about, "Ah, I wish I hadn't done that. And so so we we understand the concept. But now in a progressive world, we, we are being asked to take things that are traditionally on a sin list and we want to put them on a sacred list. So you're asking... You're asking me in the church from a theological perspective and a person who believes the Bible reliable and true and an orthodox faith, you're asking me to take things off the sin list and now put them on the altar and call them sacred. That's not going to work for me. You know, rather than flying uh, rainbow flags or banners out in front of your church saying we're welcoming to anyone in the LGBTQ community, Instead of that, we're going we're to fly green banners. 
uh, and, and it's the color of money. And there are $100 bills printed on all of our banners. And we got hundreds of banners lining the street. People can't miss it. And you drive by and you go, hey, that's, that's that church that, that endorses greed. They love greed. They, they encourage, they endorse greed. They promote greed. Anyone who's greedy, they, 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 they prop up in front of people and say, this is the new model, what it looks like to be virtuous in our religious community, people who are greedy. And when you hear it said like that, you go, well, I wouldn't want to be around that. <laughs> I don't think greedy's good. Okay, well, it's on the sin list. And if you can take one sin off the list and put it on the altar, then we can take any sin off the list, put it on the altar. Leah Hyde Gregory is the chair of the Transitional Leadership Council of the Global Methodist Church. She was presenting at a United Methodist Children's Retreat in Texas, and a little fifth grade girl raised her hand and asked this question. This is an 11-year-old girl, and I heard Leah Hyde Gregory tell me this story from her lips to my ear. The little girl said, and I quote, is incest still a sin? I know it's against the law, but is it still a sin? And this is a little Methodist girl who's been in Methodist Sunday school class. She said, I know that some sins in the Bible are no longer sins. So I was just wondering, is incest still a sin? Do you find anything wrong with this picture? And if you do, how do you rationalize that? Now, let me return to my point today, and that's the excitement of orthodoxy. The church of Jesus Christ in the world today, and I am an authority on the subject. I know what in the world is going on. I pay attention. You're listening today to a seasoned Christian leader. I have some perspective. I've walked with Jesus for over 50 years. And here's my report to you. The church of Jesus Christ is alive and brimming with excitement around the world. And let me tell you why that's true. It's true because Jesus Christ is alive. He has been raised from the dead and he dwells in light. He has been glorified and he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is sovereign over all that exists including your life and mine. And we are alive in him. And we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And we follow him. And as we do, we are invigorated and empowered and inspired, fueled by the person and presence of the Holy Spirit. We are alive and well in the church of Jesus Christ. And I'm excited about that. Following the crowd and keeping up with the end topics is easy. It doesn't take any energy at all. You simply have to allow the whims of the day to blow you in whatever direction they're heading. And let me just say that standing up for Jesus and representing him in an orthodox, honorable, faithful way is a whole lot more challenging and at the same time, a lot more interesting and a lot more fun. It's much more exciting. It's what, it's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. It acknowledges that Jesus is the author and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith, not us. 
He starts the faith. He finishes the faith in us. It's not about us. Jesus decides and Jesus teaches through his word, the Bible, and his bride, the church. We don't decide what we believe and what we teach. Jesus decides that. And we accept that and share the good news. The cultural pressure on all Christian institutions, as you may be aware, continues to become more and more intense. Christian universities, Christian colleges, Christian institutions of all sorts, uh, historic denominational churches. This is, this is happening in nonprofits. This is happening in all kinds of agencies. More and more pressure to conform to progressive thinking. And the, and the threat is the mantra of survivability. If you don't change your policies about certain aspects of human sexuality or other issues that are progressive-minded in their approach in today's culture, if you don't conform to the new rules and the new standards and expectations in culture, your organization will not survive. And let me just tell you, this is an enormous lie. It is so, it is so wrong-headed. It is so narrow-minded. It is, it is so short-sighted to be almost incomprehensible to me. I don't believe that at all. I think orthodoxy and biblical faithfulness is what God actually blesses. This is what God has blessed. This is what God is blessing. This is what God will bless. So don't threaten me. Well, you know, if you don't get in line, get in step with, with pop culture, you know, you're just asking for it. People are going to leave your church and, and, and nobody will support what you're doing and you'll just be all by yourself. You'll, you know, 50 years from now, you won't even exist. Okay. I just want to say that orthodoxy is always more substantial and more importantly, not only substantial, but enduring. How can you ask God to bless something that is clearly described as something to avoid? What I know, uh, what I know in Christian leadership in this particular category, I summarize it with this statement. If you're in leadership in some kind of Christian culture, institution, here's, here's my summary statement. If you flinch, you're dead. If you flinch, you're dead. A handful of years ago, I was at a board meeting in Asbury Theological Seminary. We were watch, walking across the commons. I happened to be side-by-side side with Tim Tennant, Dr. Tennant's the president of Asbury Seminary. And just days before the, the board meetings, World Vision, one of the largest nonprofit Christian organizations in the world, they, they raise over a billion dollars a year. That's billion with a B from different corporations. But most of their funding comes through individuals just like you and me who write them a check every month. And they, they raise over a billion dollars. They do all kinds of relief work around the world, especially with children. It's all good. It's great. Well, the board of directors at World Vision, just day, just just within a day or two of our meeting, the board of directors at World Vision had decided to change their policy about who they would hire to work for their organization, and they changed the policy to include same-sex couples, people who were married, same-sex married couples. Okay, well, here's what happened. Within 72 hours, the outcry was so loud by people like you and me who support World Vision 
that World Vision anticipated that they would have a fall-off of about 30% of their income. And so within 72 hours, the board of directors met again in an emergency session and reversed the policy. And you say, well, that's so hateful. That's so terrible. That's so wrong. So judgmental. So that's terrible. I just, I, it, may, it, just, it hurts my feelings. Rather than feeling everything so deeply all the time, and I'm going to do, do more of this kind of preaching next week, so heads up, you may or not want to come. <laughs> if you're watching online, just tune out. You don't want to listen to any more of this. Someone like me needs to say these things. And I'm the right guy to say them. I'm trying to do it as lovingly and carefully as I can. Someone needs to say it and someone needs to keep saying it. Dr. Jonathan Kaluga is president, current president of Indiana Wesleyan University. Dr. Kaluga is going to be in our worship services sometime before the end of the summer. Uh, he has promised to come, and I like to get to know him. He's, he's relatively new, and he's the kind of guy I want to be in association with, and we want to know. He uh, wrote in re- reference to this kind of cultural pressure. He said, and I quote, given the cultural headwinds that Christian universities are asked to face daily, the most obvious question to ask is, can the Christian college survive? And he said, I believe the answer is a wholehearted yes, with one caveat. The Christian college must stay Christian. It seems that every few months we hear of another university that has capitulated to the culture and has compromised on the biblical values of family and marriage and sexual orientation. While these universities may have found these decisions necessary to, quote, save their school operationally, they've sacrificed themselves doctrinally, theologically, and spiritually. And I will say to Dr. Kluge the same thing I said to Tim Tennant walking across the commons at Asbury Seminary. If you flinch, you're dead. Do not believe the lie that somehow the blessing and favor of God is going to lift off of your institution because you're faithful to the orthodox faith. Nonsense. God's a big God. He can take care of his own. And he will. I was in a meeting years ago by invitation. This is when our denomination at the time invited the pastors in Indiana, all the Methodist pastors in Indiana, the largest churches. In Indiana, a large Methodist church is anything over about 250 people. And so I was invited. This is years ago when Beth and I were about 30 years old. And we got there, and we were the youngest pastors in, in this gathering of about 50 people, we were the youngest people there by decades. Because in the denominational system, the way you get to a larger church is you graduate, you climb the ladder. You know, you start in a small church for a few years, then you get assigned to a little larger church. And if you prove that you're, you know, dependable, then you get kicked up the ladder. Until you, you're older when you get one of the larger churches. Well, we had one of the larger churches sooner than that. And so here we are, and the keynote for that event was a man by the name of Lyle Schaller. It's probably not a name that most of you would recognize, but he was a foremost authority on church consultation back in the day. Virtually everyone, every Christian leader in America would know the name Lyle Schaller. He's in heaven now. But Lyle was a guru. I mean, this boy was informed, and he was so insightful. And so it was a real 
pleasure to get to sit and listen to him for a couple of days. And it was not comfortable for Beth and me because we were young and we didn't really fit in a traditional box and our church was bigger than most of these old guys' churches and they were, you know, defensive and jealous about that and, you know, push the young guy, we're not sure about him, over in the corner. And it generally was true that I didn't know if I fit in and I didn't, I didn't feel if I belonged. I just, I just felt out of place and I was wondering about my role in the world. You know, I had all these questions. I was young and I was, I was confused about all this stuff because, I, you know, I, I wasn't getting a warm reception. And so at a break time, Beth and I went up to Mr. Schaller and I s- said to Lyle Schaller, uh, my name is Greg Paris. I pastor a little church in Muncie, Indiana. Uh, I said, um, you know, I, thank you for taking a moment to talk to me. And, and he interrupted me. He said, I know who you are. And I chuckled. I thought, it was, I thought he was joking. I thought he was having some fun with me. And then he said a few things after that, and I thought, he does know me. And then I told him my story. I said, I don't feel like I fit in. I feel like I'm out of step. I feel like, I, you know, I mean, it's just round peg in a square hole. I, I just, I can't, I'm not sure. And he looked at me, and his, you know, his eyes would kind of dance a little bit. He said, let me tell you something. He said, you can chronicle the entire history of the Christian faith, 2,000-year history of the Christian faith around the lives of approximately 120 individuals, men and women who were so unique, so, so devout, so committed to their sense of purpose in the world that they literally shaped the history of the church. 120 years, God uses people. And the whole history of the church can be categorized by the lives of these individuals. And then Lyle Schauer looked at me, and very intently, eye to eye. And he sa- looked at me, and he put his finger up like this, and he pointed at me, and he said, don't you ever apologize for who God has made you to be in the context of his work in the kingdom. And don't you ever apologize for the influence he wants to give you. You go out there, and you be yourself, and be everything that God's made you to be. Well, I, let me tell you what happened to me. My chains fell off. My heart was free. And that's the last day I ever apologized for being who I am and the conviction I, convictions I hold and the desire I have to stay faithful to the Orthodox faith. It's thrilling to me. It's exciting to me. Look around. I, you know, I've been, at, been here at Union Chapel. I'm in my 42nd year. I, things have never been better. Our influence continues to, to grow. It's almost like exponentially. It's amazing. It's phenomenal. I just, so I have a story. I have a witness. I can, I, can t- I can tell you that the God that we serve is a faithful God, and th- the more faithful I am to him, the more he is willing to bless me. I'm just saying. And so I have a conviction about these things. You may disagree with me on a number of levels, a number of points. That's okay. I'm just reserving the right to have the convictions I have and the values I have and the worldview that I have. And so here I sit, you know, God help me. Here I stand. God help me. And so I'm not apologizing. And neither should you apologize for what you believe. 
If you're seeking to live honorably in a meaningful way for Jesus' sake. It also means that we embrace and share all of orthodoxy. Let me put this statement on the screen. Christianity is radically inclusive. Do you see that? Orthodoxy means that we worship Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died so that everyone without exception could receive salvation. No exception. Everyone can receive salvation. It's radically inclusive. Whosoever will may come. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son. Radically inclusive. Doesn't that feel good? That includes you. Includes everyone. It also means we worship Jesus Christ, the son of God who taught us the way to follow him is narrow. Narrow is the way that leads to life, the Bible teaches. And it means calling him Lord and following his teachings and putting no one or nothing before him. Not following Jesus as Lord, then we are reminded, excludes us from salvation. So the second statement is also true. Christianity is also radically exclusive. I just want to say that it's exciting for me to sit in the tension of both of those. That whosoever will may come, and there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. So following Jesus and making him Lord of your life, that's like the condition. That's the requirement. That's the opportunity. That's the gift offered to us in a hopeless estate by a loving, merciful God. And at the same time, he says, listen, if you choose not to follow Jesus, that's your choice. But understand that that will exclude you from God's best design in eternity. And I don't mind that. In fact, that's exciting to me. That's, th- that, that's adventuresome for me. You mean I can be an ambassador of Jesus Christ and the glorious good news of his gospel to the world? I can be a spokesperson for that? I can influence the... I can actually talk to another human being and invite them to know the same Jesus and hope that I found? And this person's eternal destiny can be changed? How cool is that? That is a wonderful thing. So I don't, I don't get all worked up or troubled by the fact that some folks will choose not to follow Jesus. I just, I'm thrilled about the opportunity to know him and to make him known. It's an amazing adventure. I love this stuff. But it's boring, and it's easy, and it's lazy to simply see what the world has decided is the hot topic for the week and how we can bow to it regardless of what Jesus or the Scripture says. Just how uninteresting is that? No thanks. Not interested. Not playing along. Don't care. It's just, it's just too, too little a thing to go chasing this or that when you have this glorious gospel to offer the world. I'm, I'm inspiring myself. <laughs> let, me just, let me just say that marriage and gender issues matter. Can't avoid it, can we? How the church understands marriage and gender really matters. It matters a lot. And allowing culture to define marriage and biology runs counter to what God created marriage and gender to be. It just does. Let me just remind you, the Bible begins and ends with a marriage ceremony. Have you ever thought of this? The first in the garden between a man and a woman, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. These are the words of Moses in Genesis 3, and it's also quoted again by Jesus in Matthew 19. Jesus' standards for marriage was, was 
even shocked his disciples. You know, they came up to him one day and said, you know, is it okay to divorce your wife? You know, Moses said you can do it for just about any reason. Jesus said, no, can't divorce your wife for just any reason. Divorce is not good. And that's when Jesus quoted Moses. Man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. They become one flesh, and that's supposed to be a lifetime deal. Everyone just went, wow, Jesus, you have high expectations for this marriage thing. Yeah. And so the first marriage was a marriage ceremony in a garden between a man and a woman. And the last marriage is in a garden city where the church of Jesus Christ is united to the, the, the groom, Jesus himself. The last marriage is, a, is an eternal marriage where Jesus unites with his bride, the church, that's you and me, and we're united forever. So the scripture begins with a wedding and it ends with a marriage ceremony. Marriage is one of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. It's central to Christian doctrine. You can't go messing with that. Well, it's just, it's just a matter of opinion. No, it's not. No, it's, well, it's just something we'll agree to disagree on. No, it's, it's not that. It's not in that category. It's fundamental. It's foundational. You don't mess with it. It's really important. It matters. Serious business. Very serious. It's the foundation upon which God builds society. This is his order. This is his structure. This is his plan, his design. You don't mess with it. It's very serious. It matters a lot. So the culture has decided that the sexual revolution is right and that we should be ever more open and permissive in just about all these things. But it's a mistake if we go chasing down that, down that trail. So last point, I'll let you go. Thank God he's about done. <laughs> last point, we need to stand up for Jesus. Just stand up for Jesus. You say, well, how do, how do I treat my, my sexually... Uh, confused friends or loved ones, my family members. You love them. How do, you, how do I treat them? You love them. How, how, is, is this too hard? Just love people. Just love people. Accept people. Forgive them. You have to agree with them. Just love them. You disagree on some point with, with every person you love in your life. Just love people. Authentically love them. Let them hear your love. Let them feel your love. Ultimately, their, their destiny in life and destiny in eternity, that's up to them. They have to make choices for themselves. We all do. So love them well. They're not angry with anybody, hateful toward people. Stop it. We love people. I think it's just boring to just go along with the flow. I think it's exciting to stand up for God, what he intended to help people find the beauty and the grace and the love and the glorious ideal, the loving authority of his word and his mandate to his people. I think Jesus and his teachings define us. We don't define him or his teachings. He defines us. That's the better way. So culture may say we're wrong, but, but followers of Jesus are called to be faithful. We don't, we don't bow to the whims of culture. We show love to the culture by teaching everyone around us the beautiful good news that Jesus came to offer. That is our mission. That is our purpose. That is our position. That is what we believe.
If you want to make a difference in the world, listen to me, you can't be indifferent about these things. You got to decide and then live out your convictions in a loving way. Amen? Lord, we pray this morning that you would take all these words, the ones that, that you approve and the ones, even the ones that you didn't, and that you would somehow redeem them and speak, use them to speak to each one of us at the point of our hearing and our need so that more and more, day by day, we become more and more like you. Help us, Lord, to live in this truth so that we would be found faithful and that the world might know how much you love them. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. And everyone said, would you stand with us?